are listening to the Central Students Podcast. To learn more about Central Students, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net slash students. For um, those of you who, uh, you know, maybe if I've gotten the opportunity to talk to you one-on-one, you've probably heard me talk about this, but I'm going to share with you the most, the scariest thing in the Bible, Okay, now this is scary because it's not just scary because it's like, you know, like, you know, gross or it's, or it's whatever, but it's terrifying because of what it means. This is the most terrifying truth in the entire Bible, and it's something that if we don't understand this, if we don't grasp this, then we can have a serious problem. It's something that is so terrifying, and it, it's so deserving of our fear, that everything in the Bible and everything in your life circles around this one point. Are you ready? It's that God is good. And now some of you are like, okay, why is that terrifying? Like, why is that something that I should be so scared of? Why is that something that I should be dreadful to hear? And the reason that that's such a terrifying thought is because you aren't. And I'm not. Right? So here's the question. What does a good God do with not good people? Right? What does a good God do with not good people? When you talk about, so I'm a huge fan of like superhero movies, right? Like Marvel and like WandaVision. Don't even get me started on WandaVision right now, son. Right? Right? And what is it? Like what is it? It's, the, it's what does the good guy do? The good guy eliminates evil with no mercy, right? One of my favorite superheroes is Batman. Why? Because he just like gives you that work, son, right? Like there's just like, it's like, it's terrifying. Like if I get stopped by Batman, yo, yet alone it's a grown man in a rubber suit. But just like, like, like knowing what he does, I'm like, yo, I don't want any part of that. Why? Because his actions against evil are ruthless. And why is that? Because he is good. See, the problem that we have, not just as Christians, this is a problem that every human being on the planet has to wrestle with, is what does a good God do with not good people? If we talk about the fact that God is just, that God is fair, that God does not let evil triumph, then we have to come to the understanding that what God does with, what a good God does with not good people is that he gives them what they deserve. He gives them what they deserve. And some of you are like, why would you open with such a depressing thought? Because everything that we do in life has to revolve around that one point. What does a good God do with not good people? And we talked about this last week, the whole point of what we talked about last week with Jesus with this paralyzed man, right? And the whole point of that passage was that only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And now with that established, we have to ask ourselves, who is eligible to be forgiven of their sins? Because if only God can forgive sins, then who can be forgiven? We've we've answered who can deal with the sins. Okay, only God. Okay, but now who can have their sins dealt with? If you go to Matthew chapter seven, don't turn because I just had you turn to Luke, but if you want to, knock yourself out. Matthew chapter, chapter 7, verses 17 and 14. Sorry, verses 13 and 14, excuse me. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. 
for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are uh, those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and there are few who find it we talked about this last week people don't go to hell because they've sinned people go to hell because their sins are not forgiven Likewise, people don't go to heaven because they didn't sin. People go to heaven because their sins are forgiven. So with this, we understand that only God can forgive sins, but we also see Jesus clearly say, most people won't. Most people. He says that the way is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who go, who go through it. It says that the, way, the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those, and those who enter by it are few. So here's the question then. What are we seeing here? We're seeing that Jesus is the only person who has the authority and the ability to forgive sins. Then we also see that most will never experience this forgiveness that only Jesus can offer you. So you, you guys see this, right? If Jesus can forgive sins, then what keeps people from being saved? Who is eligible for salvation? Like, why is it so few people? Some of you are probably asking, can I be forgiven of my sins? These are things that we must wrestle with when it comes to our own walk with Christ and, our own under- and also our understanding of how we are to make disciples. Who does God forgive? So there's two things we're gonna look at tonight. We're gonna look at who does God forgive and then we're gonna look at how does God forgive. All right? So, Luke chapter five, verse 27. It says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat with tax, sorry, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Just pray with me real quick. Father, as we read your word tonight, I ask that you would give us understanding of what it is you would have us to know. That God, when we come to before you, we don't come before you because we've done anything to earn it. But God, I ask that tonight, if there's anyone in this room that does not have a relationship with you, Father, I pray that tonight they would hear what they need to hear, that the Spirit, the Spirit of God would work on their heart in such a way that it would lead them to you. God, I thank you and praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So we see after this, verse 27, So what is after this referring to? Literally what we talked about last week. So the story of the paralyzed man coming to Jesus, right? Like they dropped that homeboy through the roof. I wouldn't say drop. They probably lowered him, right? Like just like plunk. They probably didn't do that to the poor guy, right? But they drop him through the roof and and Jesus not only heals him of his paralysis, but he forgives him of his sins, showing his authority to forgive sins, also there thus claiming and proving himself to be God. So then Jesus is now walking along through Capernaum with his disciples and he sees a man named, named Levi. Now those of you who, uh, you maybe don't recognize the name Levi, but you probably know him by his other name, Matthew. 
Yes, this is the same Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus extends a simple invitation to him. He says, follow me. Right, Jesus approaches Matthew and he says, follow me. But before we get into this invitation, we gotta look at who Levi is. We gotta look at Matthew. So tonight, I'm gonna use the names Levi and Matthew interchangeably. So those of you who are like, okay, what's he doing? Like, who, who, who are these two different people? Like, they're the same, Levi and Matthew are the same person. I'm used to calling him Matthew just because like, I don't know. So like, so if I say Matthew, don't get totally lost with me, right? So who is this guy? Who is Matthew before he becomes a disciple of Jesus? Well, it says here that Matthew was a tax collector. Levi was a tax collector. And the passage is very deliberate to tell us that he was a tax collector. And perhaps you've heard this stated a lot. You've probably heard that like tax collectors in first century Israel were hated. They were like the worst of the worst. People hated them. But maybe you don't necessarily understand why they were hated. So I'm going to give you a little bit of understanding of why they were hated people. One, they were considered traitors. Like, they were considered traitors to their own people. So at this point in history, Rome pretty much was like the big dog on campus. Rome owned everything. Rome was in control. Rome conquered Israel, and it dominated them. Roman soldiers walked the streets, and Jews hated Rome. Because think about it. If you're Jewish, like, you're God's chosen people, right? Like, we're God's chosen people. Who are these guys thinking that they run us? Who are these guys thinking that they can just walk over us? Not only are they walking all over us, but they're walking all over us, and here they are. We're like, we're subservient to an idol-worshiping pagan nation? Like, do they not know who we are? See, the big motivation for their hatred for Rome was also just a general disdain for Gentiles. And when I say Gentiles, I mean people who are not Jewish. To give you an understanding of this, when a Jewish man would walk through Gentile territory and then come back into Israel, he would dust his sandals off to prevent bringing Gentile dust into the Holy Land. There was a disgust of people who were not Jewish. So you have this pagan nation, and the reason that they couldn't stand them is, is because they worshipped all these pagan gods, these false gods, and they said, hey, we're the ones who worship the true God. And what they did was they allowed God's grace given to them, nothing of their own merit, and they've elevated themselves in their own minds to being better than everyone else. You have this pagan nation ruling over you, and they own everything, and with that came an incredible amount of Taxes. Now, those of you, maybe you're like, I don't really care about taxes. You will. Okay, you will, you will. But when I say taxes, I'm not talking about like, you know, like, you know, like 7% sales tax, okay? I'm talking that the people, that Rome, in, they issued severe taxes on Jewish people. And how would they do this, right? They, they, would, they would, how they would do this, would they would like, because you got to think about it. They are conquered these other nations, and how are they going to collect these taxes? What they would do is that they would sell tax franchises to Jewish traders. When I traders, I'm saying traders like exchange, they exchange things, right? So these Jewish men who would trade and sell, and what they would do is they would sell them tax franchises. So what they would do is the people who traded with their own people, they would now pay these Jewish men to now collect taxes on their behalf. So think about it. The nation that the Jews hated, there's people who are their own people who are getting paid by this nation that they hate to extort money from them. Right? They were like hated. I'll give you a good example of this. 
Maybe not as extreme. Those of you who, so there is a running back. He's in the NFL now. His name's Dalvin Cook. Okay. Dalvin Cook played for Florida State. And if you know me, you know I don't like Florida State. Right? I'm a Florida Gator fan. But what you may not know is that Dalvin Cook, before he went to Florida State, was committed to Florida. He was committed to play football for the Florida Gators. And we were like, snap, we got this like stud coming. And what does he do? Is he decommits from Florida and he goes to Florida State. Most likely because they probably paid him. Right? Just, that was a joke. No one got it, but whatever. Right? Right? And he left Florida and went to go play for Florida State. And for three years, he just murdered us. Right? Like, like it was ridiculous. Like the guy is like, it's like trying to tackle like a ghost. He just gone. And it was like, oh my gosh, this guy is killing me. And it made it even worse because he was supposed to be our guy. And what you see is these Jewish men who are supposed to be on the side of their own people. And what they're doing is they're selling themselves out to be able to actually just support Rome and get paid doing that. Not only were they considered traitors, but they were also liars and thieves. Because how this would work is that Rome would set a, a number, like this is the amount of taxes that we need you to collect. And anything that you collect over that, you get to keep. So what would happen is that they would extort and they would lie and they would exploit their own people saying, hey, I know Rome says this much, but I need you to give this much. I need you to give this much. And that, that's just how it is. Sorry. And everything that I collected that was more than what Rome had, had asked for, I got to keep. And they would tax you for anything. They would tax you. There was, a, there was a poll tax. There was crazy amount of taxes. And what they would do is I would just find Brock. Let's say you're walking down the street. And let's say that you're walking down the street and you got some bread and you got some eggs and you got some chicken nuggets, right? And you're just walking. I don't know why those are the three things that came to mind, but they were. And you're walking and I say, hey, I don't know if you know this, but there's a chicken nugget and eggs and a bread tax and I need you to pay me this much money to be able to walk with those. And what I would do, I would lie to you. I would steal your money. And here's the thing is that the tax collectors would surround themselves with thugs and just total outcasts of society so that if you did not pay them, you would pay eventually. And what they would do, like, basically, you're going to pay me or you're going like, to, like, you'd be sleeping with the fishes, right? Whatever. And here's the thing. And I'm being dead serious. And what you have is that they would lie to their own people and they were hated. They were considered the worst sinners of all. They were thrown in with the prostitutes, the lowlifes, the drunks, everything. When you got down the list, it was, it was like, you know, this, this, like doo-doo. And then like way down here is tax collectors. They were the worst of the worst. They were the hated of the hated. And they got rich Stealing from their own people. If you remember the story of a man named Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see, right? And he sees Jesus, and what happens is he tells Jesus, he says, I will give half of what I own to the poor, and anything that I have stolen from anybody, I will repay them four times over. That should show you how much money this man had from lying, In almost every instance, you see tax collectors mentioned in the Bible, they are mentioned in the worst possible ways, to the point to where the Talmud, which was basically Jewish additions to the law, in the Talmud, they actually gave themselves permission to lie to tax collectors. 
to protect themselves. And Matthew was a tax collector. Not only was he a tax collector, but not getting into all the detail, but he was one of the worst of the worst tax collectors as far as the type of tax collector that he was. Matthew was the most hated man in Capernaum and was considered to be unforgivable. Unforgivable. This is a guy that has no right to be with Jesus. Go ahead, fill in the blank. Right? In your mind, who is the person, the people in your mind that are like, you know what, they have no right. Or maybe it's you. Maybe you're like, you know what, like you don't even, you don't even know. You don't know me. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't understand how far from forgiveness I actually am. But we go, and our passage tells us that Jesus approaches Matthew and he says two simple words. He says, follow me. Now, why would Jesus call this man? Why would he call Matthew? Does he not know? I mean, Jesus, Jesus lived in Capernaum. Matthew worked in Capernaum. Certainly, they would have crossed paths. As we spoke about last week, nobody needed to tell Jesus what was in Matthew's heart. Jesus already knew. And Jesus saw something that only Matthew knew, and that Matthew was aware of just how sinful he was. Matthew knew who he was. He wasn't kidding anybody. Being in Capernaum, Matthew probably heard the teachings of Jesus. He had heard of who Jesus was. He had seen the miracles. He had seen all of these things, and he not only acknowledged who Jesus was, but he understood who he was in light of this. Not only was Matthew an outcast to society, but he was also a wretched man before an almighty God. So here's the question. Who does God forgive? Well, that's what we talked about. If only God can forgive sinners, then who is it that God forgives? God only forgives sinners. I know some of you, that may seem like, okay, big deal. But God only forgives those who know that they are sinners. And they openly acknowledge that they are sinners. And they don't try to act like they're not sinners. Continuing on, we see Matthew respond to the call of Jesus. It says, Levi made a great feast for him in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. See, Matthew has a massive feast to celebrate this new commitment, right? He has this massive feast to celebrate this new commitment to Christ and this new commitment that Christ has made to him. He invited to this feast, and invited to this feast are other tax collectors and, what does the scripture say? In quote, sinners. Notice, I want you to notice this. Matthew's first response to his new life in Christ was to joyfully share it with other people. That was his first thing that he did. First thing that he did when it was this, follow me, and he decides to follow him, the first thing that he does is he takes Jesus and has a big old party with all of Jesus and all of his sinner friends. See, Jesus is sitting at the table and he's reclining with them and he's communing with sinful, wretched, evil, hated people. And the Pharisees, the religious elite, they were confused by this. They obviously did not like it. I mean, how could you? I mean, how could you be a man of God and stoop down to these people? How could you be somebody that claims to be a man of God or claims to be God himself, really, and you come down and you hang out and fellowship with these people? Do you not know how undeserving they are? What do they do? They ask him, it says, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumble that his disciples, 
saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, Jesus gives a wonderful explanation that those who are well do not need a doctor. But those who are sick, he says, I did not come to call the righteous, I came to call sinners to repentance. So boom, there's the answer to the question. Who does Jesus save? Only sinners. Jesus does not forgive the righteous people who, need, who see no need to be forgiven. My cousin has been sharing the gospel with this guy. This guy is, and they've been going through apologetics. If you guys have been with us on Sunday mornings, you know, over the past month or so, we, we were hitting those apologetics for a while, right? And he'd been, like, going through these things with this guy. And eventually, like, the guy, like, you know, yeah, and okay, like, I believe it, I believe it. And eventually, my, my cousin says, all right, like, what's keeping you from taking that step of surrendering to Jesus? And this is what he says, I just don't see a need for it. I just don't see a need for it. Maybe you're in this room and you're like, I just don't see a need for it. Maybe you talk to people at school or on your sports team, whatever, and they're like, yeah, I believe you. Maybe you're right. I just don't see a need for it. Do you see the problem? If you don't see your need for forgiveness, you will never cry out to God to forgive you. Who does God forgive? Only those who acknowledge that they're sinners. If you come to God saying, I got it all figured out, boy, get out of his face. See, the mark of a true Christian is not that you are better than other people. The mark of a true Christian is that you actually understand just how bad you are. And all you can say is crying out to Jesus, forgive me. See, the Christian gospel is unique. Every time someone tries to say Christianity is just one of many ways to God or, or they're all religions are pretty much the same, that's somebody who doesn't know what the religions teach, if someone's ever said that. If somebody says all religions are pretty much the same, like lovingly, don't say it like I just said it, right? But like lovingly say like, you know, I don't know if you know what those religions teach and what Christianity teaches. One thing one thing that makes Christianity unique is that we claim there's only one way to God and that is through Jesus. That Jesus is the only way to God. That's a unique claim. And then two, we, we, we profess, we claim that only those who acknowledge that they are wretched can be forgiven. You see, every other religion is built on this premise that you, be, you can become good enough to attain salvation. That is every other religion in the world. See, religion is built on the idea that you're not good enough, but you can be. Like, you're not good enough, but you can be. Right? The five pillars of Islam. Do these five pillars, and you can be. Right? Judaism, you have the law. You're not good enough, but you can be. Right? Not to offend people, Roman Catholicism, you're not good enough, but you can be. Right? But this is what Christianity teaches. Christianity is founded on the total opposite. Christianity is founded on the fundamental idea that you are not good enough and you never will be. And it's only those that acknowledge this that can be saved. Do you see the way up is down? 
Do you see that? The way up is down. The way down is up. Seek to attain your own self-righteousness and see where it gets you. Acknowledge your lack of righteousness and see where it gets you. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Not even one. See, we don't exactly have like a systematic theology book in the Bible. And what I mean by that is, we don't have a book in the Bible that just says, this is what we believe. Right? But the closest thing that we have is the book of Romans. The closest thing we have to that would be the book of Romans, where in the book of Romans, Paul spends the first 11 chapters in depth explaining the gospel. If you have a question of how you are forgiven of your sins, you will find it in the book of Romans, guaranteed. Right? The first 11 chapters, he just labors to explain this. And in doing so, he spends the majority of the first three chapters doing one thing condemning all of mankind. He spends the first three chapters in depth explaining how we are all lost, we are all hopeless, we are all sinners and wretched and deserving of the wrath of God. Yippee. Why is that the first three chapters? Because if you don't start there, there's nowhere else for you to go. If you don't acknowledge your sin, you can never be forgiven. Why do you think I passionately preach like this? Why do you think every week I point out the fact that you're lost, that I, am a, that I was lost, that I'm a sinner, that you're a sinner? Why? Because I want you to be forgiven and what keeps you from being forgiven is your own pride. Stop trying to earn it. How are you forgiven? By acknowledging you don't deserve to be. Let's move forward to Luke chapter 18. I want to show you a story in Luke 18. Start, excuse me, starting at verse 9. Jesus gives a parable. It says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Did you, did you hear that? Who is Jesus talking to? Jesus tells a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10, it says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference. One man is clinging to his good works and the other has nothing to cling to other than to beg for mercy from God. Begging for mercy that he knows he does not deserve. This is why a self-righteous, prideful Christian does not make sense. 
This is why for you to be a self-righteous, self-absorbed, prideful Christian, flaunting your good works makes zero sense. In order to be a Christian, you have to acknowledge you have no good works to give. What does scripture say? It says that in, to God, our righteousness is as filthy rags. And the word there actually describing filthy rags is pretty graphic in the way that it describes filthy rags. It's gross. I'm not gonna get into it, but it's gross. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When did Jesus die for you? Was it when you cleaned yourself up? Was it when you figured it out? Was it when you started to be like, all right, like, I got it, I'm sorry. Or was it even when you decided to start trying? No, while you were still sinners. He didn't wait for you to get clean. He died for you while you were still a sinner. That he comes to you in your mess, in your filth, in your junk, and he says, follow me. There's no prerequisite. There's no requirement beforehand. Just come. Some of you are like, what does this have to do with discipleship, right? We're talking about the book of Luke. We're focusing on discipleship. What does it have to do with discipleship? Because most of the time, instead of seeking to make disciples, we seek to make very moral church attenders. Instead of making disciples, we spiritually babysit people. We spiritually babysit them. And what we do is we make very moral people who are in church every Sunday and they know nothing of Jesus. They're lost. Very moral church attenders that do not acknowledge their need for a savior still go to hell. When you're sharing the gospel with people, don't start out with correcting their behaviors. Please. Don't, and now, and, and don't think in your mind, and don't, please don't say this. Well, before you can be a Christian, you need to stop doing this. And the reason I say this is because this is what people do. And they don't do it maliciously. They want to help. But the re- here's the thing, is that salvation leads to good works. And we, so what we do is we just lump the two together. All right, well, good works leads to salvation. And no, 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 no. That could not be further from the truth. The only way you could even live a life that glorifies God is if you're first saved. So what we do is we sell them, hey, all right, well, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, stop hanging out with these people, stop listening to these music. Now, look, none of those things get you to heaven. You know what gets you to heaven? Acknowledging you're a sinner and surrendering to Jesus, and the rest of it will fix itself. And what other way is this the most prominent today than when the, in dealing with homosexuality? How many Christians, how many of you in this room are terrified to share the gospel with somebody who lives a life openly practicing homosexuality? And the reason you're terrified is because you're like, how do I tell them what they're doing is wrong? Here's the thing. If you point them to Jesus, they'll get to it. They'll get to it. They'll get to it. Show them Jesus. Show them that there's hope. Show them that there's someone that forgives them of their sins. Before you can be a Christian, you have to leave this. Just stop it. Stop. Go back to your church and read your Bible before you try to evangelize. Stop. 
Jesus says, come to me. Stop dusting yourself off and come to me. Don't worry, I'll take care of the filth. Just come to me. You don't, I, I give this analogy all the time, you don't dust yourself off and you don't wipe yourself off before you get in the shower. You get in the shower. You get in the shower. There's times where, like, when I played football, and I would get home, and you had, like, those of you who played football, you know what I'm talking about. You have this line between your socks and your pads, and it's just, it looks like just the devil's ashtray on your legs, okay? It looks terrible. It looks gross. And I will tell you, the most satisfying feeling is just going, yaw, and getting in the shower and just, just like, oh, Right? And why? Just letting, it, just letting it go off. And you know, here's the thing. You never, like, I never, not once did I ever get in the shower and go, like, man, like, I don't want to dirty my shower, right? <laughs> like, never, never. Why? Because I know the purpose of the shower. When you come to Jesus, you never have to be like, oh, I don't want to dirty up Jesus. If you, do, you don't know Jesus, Only people who acknowledge their need for a savior are forgiven. So when you look at the people who go to hell, they don't go to hell because they've sinned. You've sinned. I've sinned. They go to hell because their sins aren't forgiven. And 99% of the time, the reason their sins are not forgiven is because they don't think they need to be. So we see who does Jesus forgive, but now we see how does Jesus forgive. I want to make something very clear. Okay, watch what happens with Matthew when he surrenders to this call. Verse 28 says, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And so, see, and so ends the career of Matthew. What does it say? Jesus says, follow me. And he says, and without hesitation, Matthew accepts the call to follow Jesus and he can never go back. Once you stop being a tax collector, you don't go, sorry guys, right? Like, sorry, I like, you know, whatever. You wanna know why? Because Rome owned those taxes and they ain't just gonna let you get back in. Once you leave it, you're out of it. Matthew cannot go back. Matthew cannot go back to being a tax collector. He's not like the rest of these disciples that could go back to fishing, and a lot of them, what happens? They do go back to fishing. Not Matthew. Matthew's life, as he knew it, is over. Gone. Done. Over. He cannot go back. So here's what I want you to, or what I want you to know. You do not have to clean yourself off to come to Jesus. But I guarantee you, if you truly come to Jesus, your life will not look the same. You cannot go back. And if you truly came to Jesus, you will not go back. Matthew left everything. There was no going back. This is life transformation. This is a life that is transformed by the invitation of Jesus. And this is what we have to understand. You do not clean yourself off before coming to Jesus. He cleanses you of your sin. However, a sign that you have truly surrendered to Jesus is that you will continue to do so. You are different. You are not the same. The question is not, have you trusted Jesus for your salvation? The real question is, are you continuing to trust Jesus for your salvation? 
If I asked you, if you were to die right now, if you were on your way home, get in a terrible car accident and die and stand before God and he say, why should I allow you into heaven? The only acceptable answer is I trust Jesus. I trust Jesus. That's all I got. You know what? Here's the thing. That's all I got. That's all you got. That's all I got. That's all Peter got. That's all Matthew had. That's all Paul had. And that's all we all have. The only hope is I trusted in Jesus. Trusted in Jesus. You see, we are justified in a moment. Your sins are cleansed and forgiven, bang, in a moment, in an instant, the moment you come to Christ. When you come to Jesus, you surrender to him, your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. You are filled with the Holy Spirit, and you are counted as righteous and holy in the eyes of God. Ha! That's amazing! You can't get that in a cereal box, son! That is awesome! But let me tell you, The rest of your life is now a process we call sanctification. And this is where God is now making you to be more like Jesus. We see this laid out as we continue reading in Luke 5. And I'm almost done. We just sang a song called New Wine, right? Some of you, maybe while you're singing it, you're like, I mean, this song sounds sweet, but I don't know what it's talking about. And you're just like, you know, right? You're just like, raise your hands. You're like, mm, I don't know what it means, but I mean, yeah, whatever, right? Like, you know, but that's how, you know, maybe a lot of us feel. But this is where it comes from. Verse 33. It says, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast, and often, sorry, sorry, the disciples of John fast often, and they offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? It says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. He says, no one tears a piece, of, a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will, tear the, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new one. For he says the old is good. Now what in the world did we just read? If you're continuing, continuing on, the, on in the story, the Pharisees asked Jesus, hey, why don't your disciples do all the religious traditions that everyone else does? Right? They're like, you know, they point to the religious tradition and they say, hey, I know you're saved by grace, but you still have these other things that you got to do too. And they're seeking to take Jesus' teachings of repentance and salvation and add it to their traditions of religion. They're trying to take this good gospel that Christ offers and add it to what they currently have. And Jesus tells them they don't need to fast because God is with them already. Jesus, because here's the thing, Jesus is pointing out something to them right now, and I want you, if you, you know, maybe you don't don't get this when you first read it. The point of fasting, and even today, the reason we fast is that we are sacrificing a temporary thing, a temporary distraction, so that we can get closer to God. That's why we fast. That's why fasting is always accompanied with prayer. If you're fasting and you're not praying, you're just hungry, right? Right? (laughs) 
right? We fast and pray. We, we temporarily set this aside in order to get closer to God. Here's the thing. God was with them. Like, well, I'm not saying God was with them like he's with you. No, like Home Slice was sitting next to them, okay? And Jesus is saying, you don't get it. See, what you have is you have a bunch of people that understand the what, but they don't understand the why. I understand this is what we do, but I don't know why we do it. And I would say 90% of Christians are that way. We, we know what we do, but we don't know why we do it. We don't know why we do it. Another like, uh, example of this is like, I, I, I lo- see, I love football. I made that clear earlier. Whenever I see football players, and I'm not trying to hate on anybody, whenever I see football players and they do this move, I ask myself, I'm like, do they really know what that means? Because it's a Catholic thing, right? It's a Catholic thing. And I'm thinking to myself, like, does that person attend, like, regular mass? Do they, have they gone through the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the different things that they have to do? Have they been baptized? Have they, had, have they partaken of the Eucharist? Have they confessed their sins to the priest? Like, like, are they really a practicing Catholic, or are they just doing that so that people can know they're praying? Like, they're doing it, but I'm like, do they know why they're doing it? Jesus is telling them, you don't understand why you fast. You miss it. See, you're doing this tradition. You're doing this thing because you think it makes you look good in the eyes of God, but you don't even know why you're doing it. See, they do what they do, but they do it in a way, they do it, they don't know why they do what they do, but they do it anyway because they do it out of tradition. Sorry, whew, that took forever to get out. <laughs> Man. See, fasting is, is, you know, the purpose of it is to get close to God. And Jesus is like, yo, I'm with them. And he goes, look, there's going to come a time where they will fast. They will fast, but it's not now. Then he goes on to this whole thing, right? And he goes, he tells them parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Right? You don't take new wine. You don't put it into old wineskins. In this explanation, Jesus is explaining something to them. He's saying you can't take the new that I am giving you and just apply it to your old. So to give you an example, so if I had this shirt, this is actually an old shirt, so this is probably a terrible example, right? Somebody who has a nice new shirt, could you just, st- Brandon, stand up. Nice new shirt, right? Nice new shirt, Walmart 25, right? All right, so my man is just straight out here just, just killing it, right? Now, let's say, let's say, all right, you know, what we're gonna do to make my shirt look better is we're, I'm gonna take a piece from his shirt and cut it off and I'm going to sew it to this shirt. You're going to be like, that looks ridiculous. One, you've ruined a nice shirt and then you just made your old shirt look weird, right? Then with the example of the wineskin, here's, here's something that, you know, we don't understand this today because we don't ferment wine like they did back then, right? So like, first of all, they would ferment their wine because it would kill bacteria and it was safer to drink than water, okay? Uh, so they weren't just like getting lit all the time, okay? So that's, that's why they drank wine, okay? But that's another topic, right? So what they did is that they would put this wine into a wineskin and as it would ferment, what would happen, these gases would build up and the wineskin would stretch, wineskin would stretch and then as it was stretched out it was fully fermented then it was ready to be it was ready to drink now if you took new wine and you put it into that old wineskin guess what it can't do it can't stretch why because it's already stretched to its limit and what happens is when you put this new wine into this old wineskin it bursts 
And Jesus is saying, you cannot take the new wine that I give and just add it to your old wineskin. In a relationship with Jesus, I want you to hear me, is not taking the stuff that I scream at you and just applying it to your old way of living. That is not Christianity. And what will happen is your wineskin will burst. These people that you see who say, oh, I'm no longer a Christian, or I walked away from the faith, or the deconstruction things that you hear about, uh, Good Mythical Morning, like Rhett and Link, those guys who they say, you know, they were prof- openly professing Christians, and now they say, oh, well, I have all these things, and now I'm no longer a Christian. The reason they're no longer a Christian, quote unquote, is because what they tried to do was add new wine to old wineskins, and eventually it bursts. You want to add new wine? You need new wineskin. So here's the thing. How does Jesus forgive? He changes you. He doesn't just add to you. He changes you. He gives you a new garment. He gives you a new wineskin. And if you want to be filled, you need to be changed. And Jesus closes with these remarks. He says, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. So here's another reason that people are not forgiven is because, one, because they don't think they need to, and two, they don't want the change that comes with it. I'm comfortable with this wineskin. I'm comfortable with this garment. Don't change it. Many of you in this room are probably, you know what? I'm comfortable where I'm at. And you know what? You may be comfortable where you're at, but when you see Christ face to face and eternity is on your next step, you'll probably wish you wouldn't just stay comfortable. I went long, but what else is new? And we're going to sing the song New Wine again. But here's the thing I want you to understand. Being a Christian is not about cleaning ourselves up and coming to Jesus. You know what it's about? It's about saying, I have nothing else but Jesus. God, I am a sinner. I need you. I need what I cannot produce within myself. And God, don't just add new stuff to my old life. Change my life. Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses. And I'm going to I'm going to read it so that I don't butcher trying to memorize it or quote it. Galatians 2.20. You want to see what, a Christ, what being a Christian looks like? Let me show you what being a Christian looks like, if I can find it. There. This is what being a Christian looks like. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by, the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is what it means to be a Christian. Is I was crucified with Jesus. I can't go back. There's nothing left for me to go back to. I came to him as I was and he changed me. Here's the thing. When Jesus changes you, he always changes you for the better. You can come up. Right? When Jesus changes you, he always changes you for the better. And some of you, maybe you've been trying to just add new wine to old wineskin, or maybe you're just not, you've, you've been thinking, you know, I just don't think I need it. And let me tell you, neither one of those work. You want to know the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? A Christian says, I need forgiveness. I came to God. He forgave me, and then he changed me. 
That's the only difference. So I want to I pray. And then we're going to sing. And as we sing this song, don't just sing new wine. God, give me new wine. But as you sing these words, understand what it means. What it means is, God, I come to you as I am in need of forgiveness. God, I ask that you would change me. You would forgive me of my sins. And don't leave me the way that I am. One of my favorite verses, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is the beautiful assurance we have in the gospel is that if we come to him and we confess, he is faithful to forgive. Father, I thank you. I thank you for what you've given us, Father. I thank you, Father, that when we come to you, you don't just leave us as we came. God, that you offer us something that we can never offer ourselves. God, if there's anyone in this room that does not have a relationship with you, Father, I ask that you would help them to understand their need for you and help them to also understand that you will never turn away someone that comes to you seeking repentance. Thank you again for listening to the Central Students Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net slash students.